It's National Podcast Post Month, Day 23, here on November 23rd in the year of our Lord, 2023. Now, if you live in the States, you probably know that today is Thanksgiving, the American holiday. But outside of America, you may know November 23rd better as being the premiere date for Doctor Who. And what better way to celebrate the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who and have a nice anthology entry for National Podcast Post Month. We're going to go back to where it all began, the original episode, the very first episode of Doctor Who that ran, that first aired November 23rd, 1963. Mark Short and I did a commentary for that episode a while back, and you're going to hear it now. And while we cannot include or distribute the original episode of Doctor Who, we can direct you to a place where you can find it. Last time I checked at archive.org, a.k.a. the Wayback Machine, a.k.a. the Internet Archive, you can actually find the episode, An Unearthly Child, posted there. And it's been on for a few years, and archive.org is a pretty big site for video. So I don't think it's going get, to get taken down anytime soon. That's just me. I could be wrong. Apologies in advance if you're hearing this after this recording. But like the episode we did a few days ago, Dalek, you do need to sync up this commentary track with that episode, however you have it, whether you get it off archive.org, whether you got the DVD, or if you got BritBox, or any of the plethora of ways you can legally watch Doctor Who. So without further ado, here is Examining the Doctor, where Mark Short and I do a commentary and examine the very first episode of Doctor Who, An Unearthly Child. Geekville Radio. Attention all time lords and ladies. Geekville Radio presents Examining the Doctor. Episode commentaries on Doctor Who stories spanning all incarnations of that madman in a box, the Doctor. This week's episode looks at An Unearthly Child starring William Hartnell. Examining the Doctor is part of the Geekville Radio and A1-Wrestling.com podcast families and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and at GeekvilleRadio.com. Hello once again, fellow Doctor Who fans. This is Seth, a.k.a. Zandrax, the mayor of Geekville and the pilot of the TARDIS, coming at you with a special one-off episode. Normally we do entire stories here on Examining the Doctor, but in this case we're doing just one episode. It's not just any episode, though. We are doing the original episode, the very first episode of Doctor Who to ever air. I'm, of course, talking about 1963's An Unearthly Child, the pilot episode of Doctor Who, which began a story which really is not the best in the world but it, the i think the the pilot itself is strong enough to warrant an examination and once again i don't have to do it alone joining me from england from courtesy of the propstop.wordpress.com mr mark short greetings everybody as i said this is the first episode and just for clarification we are going to do the official version there are several uh, redoings and uh, there, there was a pilot episode that was filmed that was a bit darker with a uh, angrier doctor, uh, but that's not canon. We're going to do the actual canon episode. The last time I checked, I don't think it's streaming on Amazon, but I know the DVD is available. You can get the DVD set that's just simply called The Beginning. That is available at Amazon, or it's also available on iTunes or the uh, many of the plethora of streaming media to your choice. Or you can even uh, drag out your old VHS copy. <laughs> <laughs> that would work, yeah, absolutely. 
if you want to go a little old school. So our long-term listeners know the spiel by now. I'm going to count down. When, when I say pause, click pause on this track. Cue up your copy of An Unearthly Child. And the second you start to hear the classic Doctor Who intro, hit play on this track and we should be reasonably synced up. So three, two, one, pause. And welcome back to our Doctor Who Unearthly Child commentary here at Examining the Doctor. The older TV cameras, you used to be able to point them at a monitor and it would give you this style of feedback. Um, And then they would actually take the Doctor Who logo and kind of mix it in. And that's how this was done way before CGI and even, um, you know, it wasn't even animated as such. It was just a very simple technical wizardry. Kind of a Kevin overlay. Uh, You may notice this introduction plays for a bit longer than usual episodes and we don't get the familiar bridge that we get in most post-credits. This, of course, is the uh, second shoot of the pilot. The first one had some technical issues. Um, the Doctor, as you said, was more angry, but they also had a couple of places where the doors of the TARDIS wouldn't swing close correctly, and there were some flubs with the lines, so Sidney Newman ordered a, a remount, and it was pretty rare at the time that you'd ever have the second go. Obviously, it cost BBC, you know, a few pennies to do that, even though it looks like sometimes they spent a few pennies on this production. Open says me. This is also very similar to the opening of the 50th anniversary special, The Day of the Doctor, you know, complete with the policeman and the, the TARDIS and all that. I'm sure many of the props here were just dug out of the BBC archives, and you probably got stuff here that was uh, old back in the 40s. And of course, the faithful TARDIS. The original idea was that the TARDIS would either be invisible or have a chameleon circuit, but due to costs, they decided to stick with something iconic, and that's the reason behind having the TARDIS exterior, the police public pool box. I think this is the only story Anthony Coburn is credited as writing. I don't think he did any others, but I could be mistaken about that. Well, it is, as we pointed out, the very first Doctor Who's broadcast on TV in any medium, um, 1963 in November. Here we have our first look at Cole Hill High School, the very same high school that's been prevalent throughout most of Doctor Who. Ian Cheston, who we'll meet in a few minutes, is actually still part of the school as of the modern era, listed as the chairman of the governors in modern Doctor Who. And here's Ian. The names of the Doctor's companions are originally Bridget instead of Susan, and uh, Lola McGovern instead of Barbara Wright, and Ian was Cliff, if you would believe Ian and Barbara, the original Doctor Who ship. In the original script, there was more tension between Barbara and Ian, even, and I think even a little bit more romantic, but I think they arguably come across as more professional and friendly, at least at this stage in the game. If the show were to have debuted now, there'd already be 1,200 Tumblr blogs of shipper fiction. Thankfully, uh, this is a story that was kept by the BBC and not junked. And the original 16mm tele-recordings are held in the BBC's film and videotape library still. In a way, Doctor Who was a superhero show. You know, Susan was a child who was smarter than her peers but didn't have respect and is obviously single. 
it's a template I think many kids can relate to, especially in cartoons. You know, Pokemon has Ash, Transformers had Spike. It's funny that she uh, basically admits to being a stalker there. <laughs> this episode had 4.4 million viewers because it had the unfortunate coincidence of being broadcast after the assassination of U.S. President John F. Kennedy. And it was repeated the week after. So I think it, it, it's arguable. I mean, there's I've been I've seen disputing evidence, but uh, that the coverage overshadowed the debut and maybe it hurt. But like you said, it was, it was broadcast the week later. It was actually a second story with the Daleks that the show really picked up. So, well, in kind of a fun irony, you might say the, the most hated villains are responsible for saving the show. The song Susan is listening to is officially called Three Guitars Mood 2 and is available at Amazon. Seinfeld levels of security here. Just walk right in. Then again, you know, it is a school. Well, there is a slight... Um skewed quality to Susan which has done really well that there's something qu- kind of off with her she's not quite of this earth you, you get that impression fairly quickly I think both Ian and Barbara are the teachers every kid wishes they had in high school you know the, the science teacher who was keen on top 40 radio and you know Bar- Barbara seems like a very likable person too I maybe this is just coincidence but John Smith and the Common Men, and John Smith was a stage name for a rock star that the doctor's granddaughter liked. And what name does the doctor adopt when he poses as a human? John Smith. Here's a, an interesting piece of trivia: the uh, hairstyle that Susan has there was created by Vidal Sassoon, the Vidal Sassoon of much vaunted hair or care, and you can see that um, it's. Uh, Again, it's like the otherworldly look. She's not quite... And then her, her eye makeup, too. It's almost from certain angles, she looks a bit kind of Vulcan if she had those pointed ears. Mm-hmm. I remember those corny commercials in the 80s. We have been out so soon. I'll never understand the difference between American and British cars. You know, In America, the driver's side is on the left, but you drive on the right. And in England... The driver's side is on the right, but you drive on the left. You know, it's like if you just switch the driver's door, then you just have to worry about getting out on the side you drive on. The answer is 20. Even this American knows it. I've watched A Christmas Carol. it was very time consuming and difficult to cut in this so you only actually ever really get cut from the exterior of the TARDIS to the 
interior of the console room, things like that would be done with a simple fade, and then Caroline Ford would be in the studio in that set, and then they would do a voiceover from where Barbara was standing and basically kind of mix the two together. There, there's there's no stopping the, the, the actual recording as such here. Um, that was all done... Um, as much as they could ever avoid having to cut the cameras and then tape the film together, they would they would try to avoid that. So, to every extent and purposes, this was really recorded live, almost like you know theatre, and that's why if there are small flubs with the lines, particularly with Hartnell, because he was famous for that, then they pretty much if they could do anything but cut they would basically keep going a lot of tv in this days you know even here in the states a lot of it was basically filmed live now about this time the novel a wrinkle in time was written which dealt with a fifth dimension made any 80s kids like myself had to read it in junior high school and many of the hippies in the 60s smoked weed and listened to a band called the fifth dimension So I mentioned earlier they repeated this um, almost a week later, and uh, the figures jumped from 4.4 million up to 6 million, and um, a rerun at the time in 63 was almost unheard of. So they mentioned that, of course, in the uh, show that had David Bradley in it a couple of years ago. Adventure in Time and Space. Yeah, it was. Uh, it, it seemed like it was a big deal to get it repeated, and obviously, Verity Lambert, the producer, asked for it, and it really was a big deal at the time. That you know, today we think of repeats, specifically before um, streaming and DVDs, as being a kind of a big thing in the seventies and the eighties, but in the sixties, that was very rare. Back then, shows would have. 40 episodes per season. You know, now most shows, if they run a long time, a full season is like 22, 23 episodes. And they all get replayed in the middle was, of the year. There was no effort, of course, either to really ever consider that these shows would ever be replayed again. It was uh, one of the reasons why all the stuff got junked in the seventies, because people just thought that no one would ever want to watch an episode of something that had already watched again, forgetting of course that, people in the future would want to go back and relive these times and essentially um, I'm sure hundreds of years from now people will still be watching Doctor Who nope nobody here but Autons Bueller Bueller McLeod. They want you to see exactly nothing of this set, don't they? Probably barely was a set. Tardises are indeed alive. And Police boxes were standard fare in the early 1960s because, of course, not everybody had telephones, let alone smartphones or apps. The idea was if something happened, say a crime was committed or somebody needed help, 
you could open up that little sign and get a phone that would give instant access to an operator. Over on this side of the pond in America, we just simply had pay phones that could basically function as the same thing. If it was an emergency, you could just dial an operator for free and get help. Here, my opinion, one of the most epic moments in all of Doctor Who because it's the first time we see the Doctor. We've also mentioned, of course, that uh, we won't be covering episodes two, three, and four, and uh, there's nothing essentially wrong with them, and they certainly are a big part of Doctor history, but they are dreadfully boring, and it's it's just part of the worry that I'm sure that Verity Lambert thought, well, I need to do something more exciting here because the kids are not going to enjoy this if it's just going to be teaching us about boring things every week and that's one of the reasons that the Daleks were brought in um Sidney Newman of course famously said they were bug-eyed monsters and that no one would want to watch that and of course they saved the show because if the show had continued on to be in this vein I think it would have shed viewers and eventually after about three months probably collapsed in upon itself I can't say I'm intrigued by the watching of intellectual cavemen negotiating the rights to fire, which is basically what the latter three episodes are about. Just the way Hartnell plays this, you know, he, he's enigmatic. and you, you do want to know what's going on. He but. plays it with a hint of danger too. There's, uh, you're never quite sure if he's really, really uh, a good guy, and that's a great way to open this up because obviously, very quickly early on, we realise that he's not that bad a guy. The logic is sound. We know by now that by the time they did fetch the policeman, the TARDIS would be gone. <laughs> of course, he was in his mid, I think, mid-early 60s here. Everybody thought he was a lot older. Yeah, I think he was 55, 50, about the same age as Capaldi was. But, the, you know, the, you put the wig on him, and he just looked much older than he really was. That was the hard cut there when they went from the junkyard into the TARDIS. Probably the biggest expenditure for this was this set. And obviously, you know, they've carried this forward to today, the style of the hexagonal console room and the roundels. The idea that certain objects in the room are from the different times, eras. Some of those art sculptures, I think, are pretty cool.
lot of the controls changed even within a few years, I believe. Hartnell came up with specific ways that the TARDIS would work and do certain things and got very upset when the directors told him to do something that wasn't the way that he decided that the TARDIS should work. That was a modern-day social commentary. You don't understand, so you make excuses. <laughs> but I'd heard the stories that Hartnell wanted to have in his mind what controls did what. And I think John Pertree was, was the same way, you know. He he knew that the audience would be smart enough to know that, hey, wait a minute, the same lever he pushed to open the doors is the same lever he pushed to zap Daleks. Absolutely. So the ratings were 4.4 million for the original episode, 5.9 for the Cave of Skulls, jumping up to 6.9 for the Forest of Fear, and then the Firemaker, 6.4 million. And one of the interesting things that, that you did bring up was that, you know, the death of Kennedy had an impact. Well, actually, that's kind of apocryphal. The truth is that there was actually some power outages that week, and uh, it's thought that that had more of an impact, simply because although you know England and America had great relations, it wasn't really uh, something that affected most English people, other than just out of pure interest. I don't want to say it was either aliens, but aliens. This is the type of speech you can literally see every doctor saying, Trouton all the way through Capaldi, you know, because this is just the doctor. One of my favorite um, often told lies about this story is that the original police box was made um, for a TV show about police called Dixon of Doc Green. And, of course, it wasn't. It was uh, always um, built for this episode of Doctor Who. The outfit Susan is wearing here, I believe Caroline Ford actually did own. It, it was her personal clothing because it, it just felt it worked better than some of the outfits that were being presented to her. That striped top that Susan's wearing there is actually um, the actress who praised Barbara's striped top. And when she was later in a movie called St. Trinian's, she wore that top again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's a true case of taking your work home with you. If you could go back and watch when Barbara and Ian walk into the TARDIS, there's actually a boom mic, which they decided not to stop the filming for, just very gently entering into the top of the frame. Without that noise there, this scene would have made no sense. You get shocked? Electric feedback? Hey, Doctor Who's foreshadowing the future. Look, they got a flat screen TV up there. (laughs) 
it's almost like a bookend here, the conversation that the doctor and Susan have here where she wants to leave and, and stay. And you compare that to that wonderful speech that the doctor gave, you know, the goodbye Susan, one day I'll, one day I'll return, one day I'll come back. For the very first time in the history of the show, and probably the last Barbara and Ian kind of faint here for no reason whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Time travel puts you to sleep, apparently. Yeah. Now, is that supposed to be London at the time? Or? Yes. And this, of course, is getting some extra use out of the title sequence, because they were just able to use this as the... Uh, it does look like sand, doesn't it? Almost like running into like a crevasse, or in this case, running backwards. But I can assure you, I, I actually tried with a video camera in the early 80s to shoot the screen, and it's not quite as good as, obviously, in the 60s with those cameras. But, yeah, you can make that effect with an old-school video camera pointed at a screen. And, uh, of course, literally, from whatever angle you point it at, you'll get different... Now that, of course, that kind of circular shape there Whirlpool, became yeah. the John Pertwee title sequence. You know, it's not the it, it, again, it's not the exact thing because that was ten years later, but it it is the same idea of of using the camera and and doing things to to get that imagery. This is very much uh, a, a beginning and an end even though there's three more episodes of this, simply because it was written as a pilot and it's meant to be a self-contained story with the other three episodes back-ended on. That police box there looks noticeably cleaner to the one in the junkyard simply because this was filmed at Ealing Studios and this TARDIS here was painted and not roughed up, whereas the one in the studio junkyard... Um, is that your shadow there? It looks like, <laughs> or maybe it's the cat. The Stone but, uh, Age has perfect backlight. Yeah, but that's why that TARDIS there looks relatively clean compared to the junked up one in the junkyard because that one was uh, all messed up for the BBC filming weeks later. And there you have it, a very important day in geek history as well as an important day for America this year. So happy Thanksgiving for any Americans. That's, so happy Thanksgiving for anybody who celebrates it listening to this podcast. This has been Geekville Radio. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, any of the plethora of ways you find your podcast. You can find us, just do a search. Geekvilleradio.com. You can reply to posts there, as well as on our social media. We are Geekville Radio at Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, slash X. So give us a like, give us a follow, give us a review, let us know what we're doing well. Let us know if you want to hear anything else, or if there's doing... If we're doing something not so well, let us know. I always welcome feedback. But we are going to return tomorrow with another interesting inductee for the lesser-known Geek Hall of Fame. We are inducting a feature film. And if you don't know what movie it is, if you don't know that episode, we'll just say it's Disney's first science fiction movie. And I'll just leave it at that. I'm going to power down the lights here in the Geekville Radio studios, and we'll talk to you folks again tomorrow with lesser-known Geek Hall of Fame. Thank you for listening to this edition of Examining the Doctor. Examining the Doctor is part of the Geekful Radio podcast family and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you find great podcasts, and also can be found at geekfulradio.com. Some media used on Examining the Doctor 
is the property of its respective copyright holders, all rights reserved.